0: Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at org. Now, let's continue with the podcast. Well, good morning, St. Moe's. Okay, good. All right, we're awake. Um, As uh, Pastor Sam has said, my name is Cameron Williams, and I am Pastor Kimberly's husband, uh, Caleb and Carter's father, and most importantly, God's child. And before I begin, um, as a tradition that I kind of grew up in, you always thank the house um, that invited you to speak. And so I wanted to thank... Um, Pastor Ian, members of the preaching team, um, for trusting me to share God's word for this morning. And this is an opportunity I do not take lightly, and I'm grateful for the trust and being able to speak with this community. Um, I started myself uh, introducing my identities for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because they are identities that really matter to me. Um, due to my identity as a father, I am usually at home. Or in the nursery on most Sundays, which is probably the reason why some folks have never seen me a day in their life. Uh, (laughs) um, But my identity as a father is very important uh, to me. And even though it impacts my ability to communicate or connect with this community, I am grateful for the way this community, St. Moe's, has extended uh, their warmth and grace to me. Um, I appreciate the fact that this community... um, really means it when it says, uh, takes the scripture seriously when it says, uh, Jesus says, let the children come unto me. I don't know if folks grew up in a church tradition where um, I grew up in where they loved your children, but they saw your children coming or sprinting to the stage, they would tackle them. (laughs) And so I'm grateful here that this is not that type of church. (laughs) Um, The other identity that matters a lot to me is my uh, identity as a husband, Um, to Pastor Kimberly. And I I preface it like that because in my experience of uh, being married for 10 years uh, to a female clergy member, it's oftentimes helpful for people to know that our identities are connected as she walks into her purpose and calling. Um, I say this because Uh, In the same spiritual authority that Kimberly operates here in this space, that is the same spiritual authority in which she operates in our home. And we as a married couple talk a lot about how to steward that appropriately. And I think sometimes that's helpful for people to know. Um, And then, most importantly, God's child. This identity is key because um, life happens. Um, There are... A lot of praises and victories, and at times where we would come before God and we're thankful, but there are a lot of bad things that happen in life. And those bad things often impact how we think about our identity as God's children because we're thinking, well, if I love my children, and I do, and something bad happens to them, I want to swoop in immediately, I want to stop it from happening. And sometimes when things happen to us, we're thinking, well, if I'm God's child, well, Why didn't God stop that thing or why didn't God swoop in? And so we have to remind ourselves that we are God's children regardless of the bad that happens in our life um, and regardless of the good that happens because um, God cares for us. Um, He watches over us. He gives his angels charge over us to keep us um, in all of our ways. And that doesn't change if bad or good happens. Now, the other reason why I talk about identity is because of the context for which I'm preaching. Today, we will be talking about the transfiguration of Jesus, which I believe is a passage of scripture rooted in identity, and it seeks to answer the question, who is Jesus? And, um, and Jesus, in answering that question, um, works through his identity, and how does he steward his purpose? So, um, that we have a more detailed picture for today's sermon. I'm going to expand the scope a bit um, of the narrative. Usually the narrative is the Transfiguration, Luke 9, 28 through 36. I'm just going to expand it a bit um, for 18 to 36. I, my goal is not to be before you too long, and I know folks get worried when a preacher says that, but I am a parent of two young children, so their tolerance for how long to be up here is <laughs> very limited. <laughs> So let's go ahead and read, starting with Luke uh, uh, 9, 18-36, NIV. I'll read it, so um, don't worry about screens unless you want to pull out your own Bible. Starting with verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago that has come back to life. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now, Jesus strictly warns them not to tell anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, uh, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What is good for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul. Whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them And when he comes into his glory in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death Before they see the kingdom of God. Now, about eight days after Jesus makes this proclamation, he took Peter, John, and James with him up on a mountaintop to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Now, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. Talking with Jesus, they spoke about his departure, um, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men were stand, and the two men standing with them. Now, as the men were leaving, Jesus uh, leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, "Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us build three shelters: one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." He did not know what he was saying. Um, and I, I love that part right there. <laughs> you know, God bless him, bless his heart as a <laughs> Now, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered a cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, "This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him." And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept it to themselves and did not tell anyone what they had seen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this occasion to come before you and your people. Lord, I pray that your spirit, um, as in the passage, would descend on this place, Will give us uh, an understanding of who you are, Lord, I, pr- I pray that as I speak, that you will begin to add in to my language, my speech, that you will bring clarity, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we walk away from here, that we have a greater understanding of who you are, um, that we will be able to walk into our God-given purposes, that we will steward our identities, that we will um, find places where we are affirmed and have proper fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now church, one of the most beautiful, liberating things in the world is to converse with people who get you. Like, they know you, you know what I mean? Like They understand and appreciate the context for your why. They understand and appreciate the context for why you may have left the relationship, uh, why you have that fear, or or why you are passionate about a particular subject matter. Um, They get your purpose. Like, people who know you, they appreciate how you steward your identities. They make space for your calling, and with people who get us, we don't find ourselves apologizing for who we are. I truly believe it is one of life's greatest joys to be known. And when I say to be known, I mean, being known is when we, are, uh, when we and the people we fellowship with, um, have a clear understanding of who we are. That is our personalities, how we hold our identities, and the weight of our stories, that's the pains and the victories. And when they know us, they have a proper respect for our purpose, the things that motivate us, the things that get us out of bed in the morning. Um, Last month, uh, Kim and I had the honor of attending a memorial service for a friend who passed away um, at a very young age, at the age of 33. And even though she was young, she lived um, uh, a very full life uh, she had achieved a tremendous amount of success. She had um, had her doctoral degree. She was a PhD. She was well-traveled. Um, and at the time of her passing, she had just became uh, named as a tenured professor at the university where she was working. Um, and saying all that, the most important thing was that she lived, right? But one of the most beautiful things about that memorial service was, despite the people that are meeting her at various points in her life, there was a large sense of um, unity and commonality in how we spoke about her. Uh, so, for example, uh, Kim and I met her at 19. And when her, her colleagues and folks who met her later on in her career spoke, the things that we would say as people who met her at 19 were very similar uh, to the things that her colleagues would say about her. And that just demonstrated how loved and how known she was, despite her brief time here. And... Especially within the context of a funeral memorial service, that's, that is a high honor. Um, growing up, I had the unfortunate pleasure of attending uh, funerals, but one of the things that made a lot of folks nervous was when they would say, all right, we'll give the family two to three minutes to say something. Um, and when I was growing up, that was really like five to ten minutes, and then you never knew what that person was actually going to say. Um, and so here, there wasn't that. It was literally I said something, um, Patrick Kim said something, a, a friend said something, but we all were saying the same thing. Um, that, to me, demonstrated the beauty of being known. But on the, on the other side of that coin, the most frustrating thing in the world is to engage with people who do not get you. It feels as though no matter how much you contextualize, no matter how much you contort, how much you explain, bare your soul, when people don't get you, you are either offensive to them or you're just a means to a very specific end. And most of us, unfortunately, have to interact with a world that does not get us and has no intention of getting us on a daily basis. And is the other unfortunate part is that these interactions can shape how we understand ourselves, our identities, And sometimes it feels as though the only reprieve that we may have may be an intimate relationship. And unfortunately, even in our close relationships, there's no guarantee that the person we're conversing with on a daily basis that we're in love with, that we're in partnership with, even gets us. Um, Now, about a month after Kim and I uh, had gotten married, um, we were living in a little apartment in Owings Mills. And we had an argument about whether I actually knew her or not. (laughs) And this is like a week after our wedding. (laughs) And um, like, well, it was a month after our wedding. But the week before, the week after our wedding, we had already argued about um, what were the best cleaning products to clean the bathroom. (laughs) And so it was now time to move on to bigger and better things. And like most newlywed arguments, they start with something very trivial, very stupid, uh, because, again, you have nothing better to do. (laughs) (laughs) And the argument we started started arguing over was uh, chips with a hint of lying. You know, the um, (laughs) Tostitos, you know, okay, great. See, you have to understand, and so to understand this is, Patrick and I had dated for about five years, right, um, before we got married. And prior to our marriage, um, during this entire time, whenever we would go on dates, hang out, um, she would always bring chips with a hint of lime for us to share. (laughs) So I started a conversation while she was washing dishes, and I had mentioned that she loved chips with a hint of lime. And she responded, I do not love those chips. (laughs) And she said, I only bought them because you do. And I was like, I don't love these chips either. (laughs) And so as we begin to argue about the origin of who loves these chips, (laughs) um, it morphed into this conversation about, do you actually know me, Cameron? You know, where she just says, do you even know me? How do you not know me? And she says, well, what are some of the things that I like? Dangerous. (laughs) So, you know, obviously, um, I'm frustrated. Very dangerous place to argue from, frustration. So I blurted out while she's washing dishes I know you like to wash dishes. (laughs) (laughs) And mind you, she's washing the knives at this point in the conversation. And there's a point where your spouse or your significant other, or your friend says something so ridiculous that you just have to step back and just say, "I'm gonna let you do something about that." And and Kim gives me that look and she says, "What would make you think that I like washing dishes?" And so, again, newlywed hadn't got the wisdom, the insight to stop. And as a pro tip for somebody who's dating, whenever the person you're in relationship with gives you the look and the what would make you think, (laughs) stop. (laughs) I didn't. And I said, well, because you're always smiling when you're doing the dishes. (laughs) And, um, well, needs to say, that was not true. My wife does not like washing dishes. I don't think any of us do. Um, but at bu- um, And it became abundantly clear about a month into our marriage, I did not know my wife. Uh, I will hope that I'm a little bit better now. But this is the frustration I'm talking about when you're engaging with someone who doesn't really know you. They take what you do, a function, and define that as your identity. And so... When we're doing this, uh, when we're engaging with folks who don't know us, again, function as part of identity, identity, or they create these artificial limiters on what we can actually do, um, because you need to fit within a particular box for them. And it can be, again, it can be very frustrating, and I think no one feels that frustration more or identifies with our frustration more than Jesus. Um, now, when we talk about Jesus... During his time on earth, he operated in 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 many identities, but the ones that we often see within the scripture is the identity of the Messiah, that is the anointed one, the the hope, God incarnate, and the son of man, that is his human identity, his human sense. And I feel Jesus' frustration because if you have Luke, the text of Luke, where they open up with this proclamation about who Jesus is and how he's like, the one that is coming to deliver us. And you have angels, you have the wise men coming in. And then you have um, the righteous men, a random prophet coming off the street and saying, Mary, your child is special. And then you have his cousin, John, who was told that you know, we we're preparing the way for him because this is who the Messiah is. And despite having all these things, Jesus' messianic identity was constantly questioned by the Pharisees despite having all the evidence that he is who he says he is. And in addition to having his identity constantly questioned, he had to remind his disciples all the time that he is that guy. You know what I'm saying? Like, even though I have the power, I got to keep telling them. So, for example, in Luke 7, Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead. Um, And then later on, while they're on the boat, they're in this storm, and the disciples are worried about whether they're going to drown, they're scared, and Jesus calms the storm. And in return, the, his disciples say, well, who is this? Who is he that can command even the winds and the waters to obey him? Again, think about how frustrating that it is to not be known. You have to imagine, um, like, Jesus has given them every sign that, again, that he's the Messiah. He's literally reversing the course of life itself. He's literally doing all these miracles. And then for the disciples, he engaged with them in such a manner that let them know that he is the Messiah. He, uh, when he went and selected his disciples, it was done in such a way that they even said, "You are who are you but the Son of God? And he prayed for these people. And he prayed for these disciples that he selected. And still, at the end of all that, they still didn't really know him or get him. And, um, excuse me, again, and this goes back to the limits that people's place on us. Now on the other side, um, looking about the broader community that saw Jesus. Uh, Jesus was beginning to build his reputation as a miracle worker, um, a liberator, and a pro- uh, proclaimer of God's forgiveness. And in doing that, he was also challenging the status quo. But if we look at the beginning of chapter 9, he was still um, an unknown to the community. They had asked him, well, who is this guy that's sending his disciples to heal folks and raise them from the dead and do these things? And they were like, I don't know, John the Baptist, Elijah, maybe Moses, I don't know. And again, doing the things that God's called you to do, being walking in who you are in your identity and still not being known the frustration. So, as Jesus is Um, doing these things, uh, what what is his response um, to combating this sense of not being known? Well, he does three things. He empowers his disciples, he engages in prayer, and then he engages in another layer of vulnerability. When I say empower his disciples, chapter 9 opens with Jesus giving them the authority to drive out all types of demons um, and cure diseases. And in doing that, he's affirming to them his identity as the Messiah, um, and that he's someone worthy of being followed. Uh, Because there is an aspect of leadership and discipleship where you not only teach the people that God has stewarded and given you um, authority over, uh, but you also empower them to do the things that you have called them to do, uh, or through the um, the, that you that you've been called to do. The other part is through prayer. Uh, verse 18 says that once Jesus was praying in private, uh, his disciples, uh, once he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he decided at that point um, it was appropriate to ask them, well, who does the crowd say that I am? We've sang some songs on worship, and it should be known again that prayer is communicating with God. And I believe in communicating with God that Jesus determined that um, after empowering his disciples, after doing the miracle where he, um, uh, fed the crowd with two loaves of bread and five fish that it was an appropriate time now to ask them, who am I? Like, who do you think I am? And um, now, okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, who do they think I am? And so at that point, um, through communicating with God, that they realized like, okay, now uh, I am the Messiah. And then taking another response further, vulnerability. So we have Peter who makes the proclamation, you are the Messiah. Um, and God goes, uh, Jesus goes another step further. He shows them his other side, his humanity, he says, the son of man. And he says to them that the son of man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, um, and then he talks to them about what that purpose is or what is the agent of that purpose, um, which is to save them. And in response to that, um And in response to that, he shares with them his suffering, the things that he's going to be able, he's going to be experiencing, that vulnerability. And now, in other gospel narratives, we get that direct uh, confrontation from Peter where Peter rebukes him and he says, Jesus, what you're speaking about, the things you're going through, is foolish. I would not let that happen. Um, And it. Peter's rebuke demonstrates, again, a lack of respect for Jesus' identity, his purpose, again, not really knowing him, despite getting one layer of his identity. He didn't, still really didn't know him. Um, but then, even then, um, yeah, even then, it demonstrated he didn't really know him. So, again, what do we do when people don't know us? Where are we found? Where do we exist? Well, again, Jesus models this for us in the passage of Scripture. Um, Jesus pushed back on Peter. Um, he tells Peter, he says, the way you're speaking about who I am, the way that you want to identify me, is based off of your human desires and your human motivators. The purpose I have is a higher purpose. The other thing that Jesus does is he goes from there to have fellowship with the Father, and then he has fellowship with people who actually know him. And so... In doing this, Jesus shows us what does it mean to be known or where we can go to be known. Um, And so where I'll spend just the last little bit uh, or a few moments that I have is answering the question, where are we known? We are known first in fellowship with God. The first thing Jesus does eight days after this event is he goes to pray. Um, And in prayer, he was transformed and connected with the right people. And then his identity was affirmed. Um, Prayer has to be the starting point, and fellowship with God in prayer has to be the starting point for figuring out and understanding where we are known in our identity. The reason why is because God ultimately knows us. God created us. Um, Psalms 139 says that, Before my days even happened, you ordained them. I was made in the innermost womb of my mother. Like God formed us, so God is the right place to engage in conversation about where to be known at. Um, Not only does God know us, but God is the best place to transform us. So we see here in the scripture that after the revelation, um, eight days later, Jesus needed to, um, because he was Had artificial limiters, because he was engaging with people who didn't understand them. because people were trying to fit him into the box that that met their specific purpose, Jesus needed to be restored, I believe. And and he needed to see the heights of who he could be. Um, And that was as part of the transfiguration. Um, And he needed, it was important for Jesus to experience that, that to reveal, to be, um, to exist in that glory because, um, Soon after, he's going to go to the valley, which, was being, which would have been his suffering. Now, in addition to um, God affirming us and transforming us, God sends the right people to us to help push us further in our purpose. Um, as we look at the transfiguration story, um, God sends two people, Moses and Elijah. That is the, the godly fellowship right there. And the reason why it was so um, unique or special about the people that is ultimately sent was for a couple of reasons, um, Moses being the, the deliverer of a fickle people, and so who loved them at one minute and hated him the next, could really empathize and relate where Jesus was coming from. Um, Moses was the um, God's mouthpiece and proclaimer of His law, and so the way that Moses existed in his in his purpose correlates with how Jesus was walking in His earthly purpose at the time. Um, Elijah was a great prophet who performed many signs and wonders, um, and so. Him and Jesus had commonality in how they existed. The other part was Elijah was taken up, and he did not see death. And when Jesus was speaking to his disciples earlier about the things, uh, about his glory and about what was going to come to pass, he had mentioned that there would be some who would never taste death. And so it was important to have Elijah there, because that was another affirmation of not only his purpose, his calling, but the power that he had as a result of walking in, um, in his purpose. Um, and then, after God brings the fellowship um, to both uh, to Jesus, God does this other thing where He affirms the identity of Jesus. Uh, and the identity that He affirmed was the one that mattered the most uh, was the idea of I- identity of being a son. Now, um, when Jesus, when God speaks, "This is my son." This is the second time that God makes a vocal proclamation of who Jesus is to a crowd. The first time was in. Uh, Luke three twenty two through twenty one, where after Jesus is being um, baptized, a voice comes from heaven that says, "You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased." Um, and at that point, Jesus hadn't done anything. Like there were no miracles, there were uh, nothing really exceptional at that point. Jesus had just existed, and God let him know that you don't you hadn't done anything other than being born. Um, but I am pleased with you. My love for you is not contingent on the miracles you do. My love for you and, and how I see you isn't how the world sees you, where you have to provide value first before I can affirm you. Jesus, God says, I am affirming who you are as my son, whether you do something or not. And what I love about both those um, two points is At the end of the baptism, they make a point to note that Jesus is 30. And then at this point, after people had misidentified Jesus, after people have lumped him in with just, you know, all the Old Old Testament prophets, even though those um, Old Testament prophets and men were great in their own right, they weren't the son of God. And so even after lumping Jesus in with all those, God again says, no, no, this is my son. And again, Jesus at some point, probably, you know, about 31, 32, and I think about how... Tra- no, somebody in their mid-30s. And I think about how transformative that is to have someone look at you. After you've lived some life, and in your 30s, you're doing a bunch of striving. You're doing a bunch of... I'm trying to figure out who I am. What is my impact on the world? And for someone to kind of cut through all those things and just say, I see you for who you are. What you really mean. Um, I just think... The words of that really carried and sustained Jesus because, again, um, he's striving. He's trying to, he knows that the real suffering is coming and his Father still sees him and looks upon him with love, um, regardless if he did anything or not. (laughs) Um, So, again, in fellowship with God, we are intimately known and affirmed and transformed according to the purpose that suits our calling. which is different in the way that the world seeks to transform us, and we are directed to godly fellowship. Um, That is fellowship that ultimately gets us and gets the story that we're on. And the reason I want to spend just a little bit of time here is that taking time to know God, that is to have fellowship, conversation with God, is just as important as taking time to um, understand yourself. Um, Because the more we know God, the more we commune with the Father, the more we converse with the Father and and get in the scripture, the more we will understand about ourselves because um, our purposes aren't, uh, who we are and our identities aren't separated from our connection with the Father. Again, this is someone who has counted your days before um, they were ever days to begin with. Um, And so that is the appropriate place to begin with as we think about how we steward who we are. Um, Now, the other important thing that Jesus does where he goes to being known is having the right fellowship. That is having fellowship with people with common purpose um, and who are also believers of who God is. Um, Luke 9, 30 through 31 shows us that as Jesus is praying, um, shows us that as Jesus is praying, um, Two men appear, Moses and Elijah, as I talked about a little bit before about um, why they were there. The thing that was important about Moses and Elijah, in addition, to their tes- um, in addition to their purpose, was how they appeared before Jesus. Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed into his state of glory, the glory that he told his disciples that he would be presented before um, should they not be ashamed of him. But then Moses and Elijah also come um, to a similar, appear before Jesus in a very similar state as well. When we're in right fellowship with people who get us and understand us, um, there's commonality in how we look. Now, we may not all look the same because, you know, everybody's different, but the way that we engage with one another, there's commonality in how we look and how we think, right? Um, And then the other part was they affirm, their appearance is an affirmation, again, of Jesus' identity. Jesus says, again, there are saints, there are folks of old time who will come before, uh, who exist in glory. And so where they come in um, as part of that fellowship, they also come in glory, showing again to the disciples, had they been awake, um, that I'm not just getting up here, spitting up words uh, or saying anything. Um, I am the truth, the way, the life. What I am saying comes directly from the Father. Look at the glory that these folks are existing in. Um Now, uh, so then it becomes clear that Jesus, now transfigured, no longer has to actually dim himself. The thing about great fellowship and godly fellowship when we're known, we don't exist in those artificial limiters anymore. There's no dimming of ourselves. We're fully existing, fully coexisting in the purpose that God has for us as others are coexisting, as others are existing in the purpose that God has for them. And together they all shine brightly, right? So then, the other part was um, the conversation that they're having. The Bible says that they were having convers- they were having conversation with uh, with Jesus about his departure or what it means as his Exodus, um, meaning it as the com- um, the confirming the fulfillment of the promises that were made during their times. Uh, both prophets had testified of another deliverer or another. Um, uh, yes, there's another delivery that was going to provide eternal uh, salvation. And so when they were speaking with Jesus, um, they were re- uh, speaking about that. Uh, the other thing that they were doing was they were preparing Jesus for the suffering that was to come, right? And so as we talk about the exodus, the departure that Jesus was going to have, that departure was going to be a, a horrible, hard departure, a bloody departure. And so I believe that both of these men were coming there to say, um, as you walk in this departure, as you walk on this journey, about, what's about to come next, let us build you up, let us care for you. Um, and I believe this was a comfort to Jesus, the son of man, right? So the reason why I say there was comfort to Jesus, the son of man, Moses knew what it was like to have, again, a unpopular message to deliver people, and then after you leave them, hope that they still get it after you're gone. Um, so, for example, Jesus talked a lot about the holy the role of the Holy Spirit, which was going to be the reminder, right? Because, again, he knew he couldn't be there forever. He's like, I'm giving you everything I got, and you're still going to get it wrong, and I hope that, my God, that you all would just do something right, right? And Moses had that same frustration. I mean... Uh, part of the reason why he didn't go to the promised land was because, like, oh my goodness, these people have seen me do manna and miracles every day, and they're still asking me how we're going to have water. <laughs> like, so Moses gets in, and that was a comforting part, right? But then, um, the part of persecution, Jesus says to his disciples, um, I will be persecuted. I will be shunned, and I will be ashamed. And Elijah got that, right? Because Elijah was persecuted by Queen, uh, by Queen Jezebel. He was persecuted by the by the prophets of Baal. And so Elijah's there to say, like, like, bro, like, I'm I'm locked in. I'm with you. Like, I get it because this is what happened during my time. And I believe that was a, a source of comfort as opposed to the conversations he may have had with the disciples who were just like, no, no, Lord, that won't happen to you, right? So the thing here, as we're bringing it back, is that godly fellowship confirms the words that God has spoken over you and the identity that God has affirmed within you. Godly fellowship will always affirm and add perspective to your calling because these are people that God has directed um, to walk alongside you. So if having fellowship with God and if having fellowship with Godly community is where we are ultimately known, well, how do we get these things, right? Starting first, how do we get Godly fellowship? Uh, You guys got we got to read our word, right? You got to read the Bible. There's no, just no way around it. Um, I say that because setting aside private time is kind of hard, um, and, and you know it's difficult. But getting into our words and having actual Bible study is one of the ways that we get an understanding of the character of God and the nature of God. Um, the other part is we have to know His Son. That is, Jesus has told us He is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, no one comes through the Father except through Him. Uh, Jesus has said, "If you are ashamed of Me, I will be ashamed of you." And so. Knowing Jesus, knowing God's word is, a, is the foundational part of how we start our fellowship with God. Um, the other part is conversation, that is prayer with God. Prayer is probably one of the most difficult things um, as a part of my walk. Um, has anyone ever felt like this? you you just throwing words in the air? Like, you, you're like... Lord, like, all right, cool, I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. because some elder at to the church told me that's the only time you can meet God and I'm going to do it. And then you start, like, praying and you're like, all right. <laughs> like, nothing's really, like, happening. And then, you know, you start, like, thinking about something and then you're like, oh, God, I got to, like, focus back in and, and, like, you know, and then you start dozing off. like, And then so it just feels like there's not a lot happening, right? Um, but this is the way I kind of look at it. And and this is hard for me as an introvert. Um, Who remembers their... Who has a friend? Who has, like, a best friend or something, right? Okay. All right. Um, Who remembers the first conversation that they had with their best friend? That conversation probably wasn't all that great. (laughs) It was awkward in the beginning, right? And... You're, you know, you're probably just like, oh, this person's not going to really mean anything in the story of my life. This is just a rando, right? Um, but then, as you have more conversations with the person, um, and as you all started to get to know each other a little bit more, you were like, oh, okay, like, oh, we're locked in. Like, this is this is this is my my person, right? This is the person I'm going to spend my time with. It's honestly the same way with God. Conversing with God is going to feel awkward in the beginning. Prayer with God is going to feel weird. It's going to feel like. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just saying anything. Um, but the beauty of conversing with God and having fellowship with God is God wants that. God wants you to say, you know, like, Lord, just anything. Um, I mean, for example, like, look, like, um, we look at the Psalms, like the book of Psalms where David's writing scripture. He's writing about his, his communication with God. Like, David literally has the most random conversations with God. And in our minds don't make sense. For example... In Psalm 139 that I just referenced, where he's talking about, like, Lord, you know me, like, oh my God, like, no one knows me like you know me. Like, a couple stands later, he's literally like, destroy my enemies. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's like you're having this very intimate conversation, but that's what it can be like with God. And through those conversations um, with God, that's where he's going to direct us to the people who we need to be in fellowship with. Because God's going to look at how random you are. God's going to look at, like, My poor introvert child, like, I'm going to have to send an extrovert along the way to, like, adopt you. You know what I'm saying? And and the thing is, that's what God's going to do. And so that's why we got to have that prayer of God. The other part that's really important is actual service. Looking at earlier, when Jesus wanted his disciples to understand who he was um, and to have fellowship with him, he empowered them and sent them out to do work. There is an aspect of knowing God that requires you doing work. Now, work isn't the foundation of our relationship with God. It's not the only way that God loves us. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, God said, I love my son, and he hadn't done anything, right? But in us doing work, that's how we understand the nature and the character of God. And what does work look like? Work looks like, you know, charitable things. It actually looks like serving in church. Um, I know that Alpha's coming up and other things coming up. Kenneth, you're on it. Um, And there are ways that we can serve in our community that we can actually understand what does it look look like to be a part of um, the work that God's doing. And then now looking, how do we have godly fellowship, right? So now that we've prayed um, and God starts sending people our way or he's directing our attention, um, we have godly fellowship, again, through prayer, insight. God's providing that wisdom to us. But the other part of having a Godly Fellowship is you actually have to go somewhere where Godly Fellowship exists. Again, for my introvert folks, I, I, I get how difficult that can be, but you cannot have Godly Fellowship if you're not going somewhere where Godly Fellowship exists. Um, and so where that looks like is small groups, serving in church, because those are places where you are, you're you're here, you're hearing God speaking to you about your purpose and your calling, and then you're going somewhere afterwards uh, to hear about, um, to engage in the word, to, this, to dissect uh, what God is saying and uh, what God is saying to you. The other part about doing the service piece is that you're having fellowship there as well, um, and you all are laboring, co-laboring um, together. And then the other way we have godly fellowship, and this is the hard part, I feel, is when we're vulnerable when it's appropriate. There is power in our vulnerability, uh, because it allows us to um, it allows us to be known on a deeper level, something beyond surface, uh, and it allows folks to point out characteristics and qualities in us uh, that affirm who we really are. Um, And that's really and when it's done before the right people, it's very transformative. Um, I think again, Jesus is at the mount. Um, on top of the mountain, and he's appearing before his glory. He's very vulnerable. Um, He knows he's going to suffer. And he has Elijah and Moses there, and they're talking about the departure. They're talking about the suffering. They're talking about the things, a part of his mission that are going to be hard. And that level of vulnerability transformed Jesus and empowered him to do the next work, right? Um, And so there's power in our vulnerability. And I know that oftentimes when we talk about vulnerability and engaging with folks, Um, All of us can think about an instance where we were vulnerable too fast or or at the right amount of time, and the people we shared that vulnerability with didn't steward it well, and it did hurt us. Um, But what I would encourage all of us in our prayer life and in our communications is that we would really start to have God identify those people, and God give us wisdom on when we can share um, parts of who we are, because, again— is a liberating experience to be known and to be seen and have our identities properly cared for. Um, so I open up today's sermon with the identities that I steward and that mean a lot to me. Um, and I know that, again, there's power in being known um, and knowing who you are. And so in closing us out today, I would like to share some affirmations about the church and the folks here and the people um, about what I've experienced um, from the people of St. Mo's, And so here's my affirmations. I want to share with you all Um, as people of St. Mo's, I want you all to know that um, you are children of God. First and foremost, that's the most important thing right there. Um, You are children of God. Um, That God knows the most significant and insignificant details about you. He knows the hairs on your head. Um, And so You know, sometimes he knows that that can be a lot or a little, depending on where you're at. Um, um, I want you to know that you are radiant, meaning that you shine brightly. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, meaning I want you all to shine brightly. And knowing your purpose and knowing your calling... When you walk fully in it, you're radiant. Don't dim your light for anyone. Don't think you need to shrink back. Don't think you need to be less of who you are. P- the people who are going to get you are going to get you, and they're going to encourage you. The people who are not going to get you, don't waste your time. I, I, and I mean it. Don't waste your time trying to contort yourself for people who don't get you. Shine brightly and shine radiantly. Um, and then lastly, you all need to know that you're called and anointed for such a time as this. Whenever you look at something and you think that maybe I'm the person to do this, you are the person to do it. If you're waiting, if you think you need to wait till you're more qualified, if you think you need to wait until um, you have the next degree the next whatever, um, one, pray for wisdom about when to act. But more often than not, you're called and you're qualified to do it, period. Um, so allow that to carry you this week. And I'm going to close this out in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for knowing us. Thank you for being at the beginning of our story and being at the end of our story. You have not lost track of us. We are not lost in the shuffle of life. We, are not, we haven't fallen out of your hand. We are being carried and covered by you, Lord. And so, Lord, my prayer is that for everyone who leaves the space and as they begin to engage in fellowship with you, my prayer is that you will meet them there, Lord. Meet them at whatever time that they take to meet with you, whether it be an early time at 5 a.m., whether it be between the time when you're putting the kids down, Lord. Meet them there. Your word says that if we search for you, we will be found by you. And so, Lord, I am asking that you will find us. And, Lord, in that searching and in that finding, send people our way who will walk alongside of us, who will affirm us, who will uh, remind us uh, of who we are, Just as you remind us who we are. Allow us to be bold and courageous as we carry our identities, as we walk into our calling. And let us go from here having a better relationship with you and a better relationship with our brothers and sisters. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.